If you will take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews. We come this morning to Hebrews chapter 6, beginning again at verse 13. And we're going to be focusing our attention this morning on verse 17, but we'll read the passage once more. If you'll join me in standing as we read out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning again at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Would you pray with me, please? (coughs) Father, we ask that you give to us grace to understand. We pray that in this day, you would open the eyes of our heart, grant to us wisdom and knowledge and understanding as we consider the wonder of what it is that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, it's a mercy we do not deserve. It's a mercy we could lay claim to only because you open our eyes. And Father, that itself is miraculous. God, help us give to you the glory and honor which you deserve. And let us never be guilty of stealing for ourselves any of your glory. Let us never be guilty of stealing for ourselves even the slightest piece of the honor that is yours, especially in the matter of our salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. So I ask you this morning, what is the measure of God's abundant goodness? I believe that one of the most overlooked and yet profoundly awesome things that God does consistently is self-revelation. We are not owed any display of God's nature. We are not owed one hint of his power, his love, his holiness, or his beauty. Creation itself declares the glory of God, and that should be enough. We are given every opportunity in nature and in its wondrous diversity to see the fingerprints of God everywhere. Romans 1 makes it plain that God has shown us his nature in all that he has made, and that there is enough knowledge in everything that God has done, in every blade of grass, to condemn every man, woman, and child ever born. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 20, says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
So when we pause to think about the fact that not only does God speak beyond his creation to show us who he is, we also realize that he gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. He gives us revelation. He calls dead flesh to life. He does everything needful to make us know him and love him. And he owes us none of that. But he does it because he's good. When we consider these things, the right response is not to argue against them, but instead to fall on our face in worship, to fall on our knees and say, oh God, what you have done is so glorious and so good and so true and so beautiful. So I want to think with you this morning about this self-revelation of God. I want to think with you this morning about what a mercy it is and about how abundantly he, he continues to show us who he is, about the majesty that is revealed in everything that he has done And I want to think with you about our obligation to him, to honor him for it, instead of trying to take it for ourselves and say, no, I've done this. I've I've made it possible for me to love God. So let's begin in Hebrews. So the very first thing that I want to point out to you is that God is good beyond measure. The writer of Hebrews, again, verse 17 is where we're focusing our attention this morning says, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So this idea of the abundance of God, it's worth paying attention to because God is forever dealing with us better than we deserve. Amen? He is forever dealing with us in ways that exceed not only our our desert, but exceed our expectation wildly. That there is nothing that we can possibly expect of God that he is not able to exceed and willing to exceed. And, and all of it is not because we have demanded it or because we have expected it or because we deserve it, but because he is good and faithful and kind and loving and desires for us to know him. He desires that we who are his own would know him intimately and know him fully, so much so that one of the promises that is given to us in Scripture is that one day we will know him even as we are known. So to the fullest degree possible that God knows us, we're going to know him. Just chew on that for a minute. Let that settle into your mind and consider what a glorious blessing and what an awesome thing it is that God deals with us in this way. But this idea of his abundance and how he deals with us, it's not limited to his knowledge. It's not limited to the fact that we get to know him. It's every place that he touches our lives. God deals with us in abundance. He's never stingy with anything that he gives. He never holds back. He never gives you just a little bit and says, that'll have to do you, you selfish little thing. That's, That's not his nature. He never speaks to us in that way. He never rebukes us for asking. In fact, he tells us, come boldly before the throne of grace. Come boldly and make your request known so that you might know me, so that you might see the fullness of everything that I have for you. Why is this? It's not because we in ourselves deserve it, but because what God has done in saving us is to have made us into sons and daughters. He has made us his own children. And in making us his own children, he has offered and honored us by allowing us to have the fullness of everything that that means. We are not second-rate citizens. We are children of God and co-heirs with Christ, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8. So, as we start this off, I just want to 
really quickly think through with you some of the abundance of God so that it kind of primes the pump as we're thinking about his abundance in dealing with us with his promise and with the knowledge of who he is. First of all, he abundantly gives us pleasure and abundant fullness in himself. Psalm 36, 8 says, They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your love, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. So what God does in our lives is to be that which satisfies everything that we need. If we will turn to him with our needs and turn to him with our, with our desires, turn to him with anything that, that is, we're facing in this life, what the scripture promises is that God will abundantly satisfy our needs and will abundantly satisfy our pleasures. Now, I'm not, I promise you, I've not gone off the rail and I'm not preaching health and wealth. What I'm telling you is that sometimes the things that you want in this life, that the world tells you you should want, you don't need them, and if you had them, you wouldn't want them. But what God does is satisfies the true wants and the true needs and the true desires of our heart. He calls us into relationship with him so that he might bless us with everything that we actually need. That's not to say that he gives you all the things that the world says you should want, but he does give us everything that's needed. He gives us peace. He gives us joy. He gives us hope. He gives us pleasure just in who he is. There's a transformation that takes place in our mind and a transformation that takes place in our lives. The more we know him, the more we recognize that all the other things that we think we want or need, they become less important. They become less meaningful. They become less impactful. And of course, if we're going to think about abundance, we have to consider his abundant pardon for sin. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I, I, don't, I don't think that it's possible to consider our relationship with God in the absence of considering what a miracle it is that he pardons our sin. That he takes away that thing which separates us from him and takes it away fully. There's not a cap on how much sin God will forgive. Amen? And thank you. (laughs) There's no limit. God doesn't say, okay, I'm going to give you this much. And when you fill up this bucket, the rest is on you. That's not how he approaches us. He doesn't say, I'm going to pay for all the big sins. And then I'm going to send you into a place of torment for a prolonged period of time so that you can pay for all the little ones. That's why the scripture doesn't teach purgatory. It's a lie. It's something that men invented because they can't believe the abundance of God. But the scripture teaches us that God abundantly pardons, that God gives forgiveness for all of our sin because the death of Christ paid for the sin of his people. It didn't just give it in potential. It actually paid for it. God has counted our sin if we are found in Christ. God has counted our sin as paid in full. Done. That means that there is no longer any record of transgression which we must give an account for. There is no longer any record of sin to which we will be punished for our failure. Now, the scripture teaches that there will be an accounting for our lives and an accounting for our behavior, but it is not punishment It is not that Christ is going to say, okay, I've paid for this one, this one, this one, and this one, but those are yours. 
What God tells us is that all of the punishment was lavished on Christ, that he endured the wrath of God on the account of your sin in your place. There is no more wrath left for those who are found in Christ. Period. This is abundant pardon. He is also abundant with us in the way that he gives life. Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. You've got to ask yourself, what is abundant life? Well, it's not what the world seeks. Abundant life is not more cars and more boats and more toys and, and more money. It's, it's not about all of those things. Abundant life is about peace, about hope, about joy, about purpose, about fulfillment. Abundant life is about your life actually having a meaning. And in the end, if your life has a meaning and God allows you to satisfy the meaning of your life, what else can you want? Because so many of the things that people chase after are an attempt to find meaning where meaning does not exist. So many of the things that people fill their lives with are are an effort to somehow pour meaning into emptiness, which is why they go from one thing to another to another to another. Faster than you can turn your head, they're turning their lives into some other new pursuit. It's why garages fill up with everything that we bought but will never use, and and we don't ever have time to use the things that we want to use right now, and, and we have to do all the things that we want to do so that we can justify ourselves, but this is why we work harder at our play than we do at our jobs. Because we're looking for some sort of meaning that's not to be found in any of those things. There's a frenetic sort of energy that drives people in this life that are pursuing something, trying to have something that they don't possess. And they think they're going to satisfy it with material things. But what the scripture teaches us is that in Christ, we have a full life. We have an abundant life. We have life overflowing because in him, our purpose is both defined and answered. We exist for Christ. We exist to give him glory. We exist to commune with our God. We exist so that we might be made into the image of Christ, so that we might bring him maximum glory. He is both our purpose and its answer. He also is rich and abundant in mercy. 1 Peter 1.3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, mercy. What is mercy? There it is. It is God not giving us what we deserve. It's one side of the coin. On the flip side is grace. And grace is giving us what we do not deserve. So God both withholds what we do deserve and lavishes upon us what we do not. Grace and mercy. This is the interaction of our God with us. And it is abundant. And it's important for us to use this as a platform to consider how God reveals himself to us. Because I want to stress again that we don't deserve God's self-revelation. He doesn't owe it to us. He gives it 
He gives it in abundance, but he doesn't owe it. And the fact that God is willing to speak to us in any way is miraculous, and it is mercy. God speaks to us not only through creation, but he speaks to us through his word, and that is mercy on mercy. You can carry in your hand the very word of God and find at your disposal the things that he has said and the things that he wants you to know and understand about the world. And I speak the truth to you that every single word in here is given to us by God. And every single word in here is truth without fail and without error. It defines our thinking. It defines our interaction with the culture. It defines the way that we deal with God. It defines everything that matters. And honestly, it gives the parameters to help us define everything that doesn't. The scripture is the very word of God. It is that which God has given to us so that we might know what he requires. And it is absolutely important that we recognize that God has given it so that we might know him. This is mercy. This is grace. This is truth. And this is glory. And in the end, he does this so that we might know him. And I want to define this term, we. Because this revelation of God, this glorious, abundant revelation of his person, is given, according to the writer of Hebrews, for the heirs of the promise. Look again at verse 17, chapter 6. It says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. Now let me ask you a question. Who is the heirs of the promise? Those who belong to Christ. So, so this makes it not this broad sort of works for everybody kind of thing. This is the idea that God has particularly, specifically, eternally known you who he has chosen and revealed himself to you so that you might know him. This is the God who before anything began had already chosen us in the beloved before he ever said, let there be light, according to Ephesians chapter 1. This is the God who chose us before the world began so that we might be presented before him blamelessly in love. This is the God who knew that the fall was determined so that we could know God in the fullness of who he is, so that we would have the opportunity to know and to rejoice in his redeeming love, which is the best part of his love. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, that angels long to look into these things. Because the angels of heavens behold the face of God. They're not short on understanding the promise, but they'll never understand it like you will. Because they don't get to experience it. There's not an angel in heaven that wouldn't trade places with the least of the saints. Just think about that for a moment. And consider what wonder it is that God himself has opened wide your heart so that you can see this. Because this is a very specific promise made to you. And there's a wonderful hidden truth here that I just want to point out to you. The Greek literal in Hebrews 17 for confirmed, the last part of the verse here, it says, for God determining to prove more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability, wow, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And the Greek literal here 
The word is emetistusens, and it means to intercede or to interpose himself between us and his wrath. It's the idea that God's confirmation of the oath is an actual intercession of himself as, as this intercessor between us and his wrath. So God confirmed it with the oath. It is this idea that he himself has stood as a shield to protect us from his wrath because he's pouring out his wrath on Christ for our sin. Beloved, this is what God has done in revealing himself to you. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because our sin is a barrier between us and God. Our sin is something that God will not abide in His presence. And so if we're going to know Him, if we're going to interact with Him, if we're going to be engaged in a relationship with God, then we must have our sin actually removed. It must be taken away. But God cannot unjustly just say, well, I'm going to just pretend like your sin doesn't exist. He can't just unjustly say, well, it doesn't matter. We'll we'll, we'll turn a blind eye. He's not a judge in a circuit court. He is just. He is good. He is holy. And so for sin to be set aside, the penalty for sin must be paid. And Christ paid the penalty. God, in the person of Christ, stands between us and his own wrath. Often people talk about being saved from hell. But I'd like to define the term a little more clearly for you. The scripture teaches us in Psalms, if I make my bed in hell, lo, there you are. What is the reality of hell? It is the wrath of God. It is the particular specific wrath of God poured out for sin as it is deserved for all of eternity. So when we talk about being saved from hell, what's really happening here is God is saving us from himself. He is saving us from his own wrath, which we so richly deserve. And he is saving us by taking that wrath upon himself in payment for the sin of his people. This is the God who reveals himself to us because he loves us. And in the end, he is always going to be found faithful. And this promise will never fail because not only has he taken his wrath on our part, but he has made us his children. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And in James chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Who's the chooser in this? Is it us or is it God? It's God. God has chosen us. And He has chosen us not because we are better, and not because we are smarter, and not because we are, are, are wiser. You remember how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He's chosen the foolish and the despised and the weak and the shameful things. He didn't choose us because we were better. He chose us because He wanted to choose us. And there was nothing in us to commend us to Him. He chose us. And in choosing us, he made us his children. It's his glory, and it's his work, and it's his power, and it's his promise. So that being said, we need to recognize the very simple thing 
that God does not show miraculous signs and wonders and, and revelations of his glory to those that he is not calling, simply willy-nilly. You remember when Jesus was on the earth and the Pharisees asked him for a sign? What was his response? No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And what was he talking about? He was talking about Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days. Jesus died, was dead for three days, and arisen. It's not to say that Jonah died in the belly of the whale. I know some people teach that, but that's not scripture because dead men don't pray. Um, but but it, it was to say that I'm not going to just throw around a bunch of signs. He'd been doing it for a couple of years. He'd been feeding the, the hungry and healing the sick and raising the dead and doing all the miraculous signs. And the Pharisees kept pressing and pressing and pressing. Show us a sign. Show us a sign that you're really the Christ. And Jesus said, well, I've been giving signs. I'm not giving anymore. Because at that point, they hadn't seen what they'd already seen. They hadn't understood what had been plainly made clear in front of them. They weren't his. And, and clearly some of them, among them, would not be his. He gives signs for those who are his children, for those who are already alive, or for those that he is in the process of calling. He gives signs because his signs are specifically connected to the transformation of lives into living souls that will love him and honor him. So, beloved, I want you to understand what that means. If at some point in your life, you were a person, and all, we all were, who when we read the Bible... All we saw was words that made no sense. And when somebody spoke the truth of the gospel, all we heard was wah, 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 like the grown-ups on Soupy. And then all of a sudden, out of a clear blue sky, suddenly, suddenly, somebody started making sense. You need to understand that what happened was God himself breathed life into a dead soul. Amen. And he did that because you were his from before the foundations of eternity. He did that because at the time, it was time. And you were chosen. He did this because of his glory and his greatness. This, desi this display is designed to show us the perfection of his will and of his counsel. It is not the display that he is making of us to the powers and the principalities and the heavenly places like we read about in Ephesians 3, although it's connected. It is... What we're talking about here is the display of the ways that his irresistible grace transforms our minds and our hearts to believe. How many times have you spoken the truth of the gospel to somebody and said, look, this is the simple truth. Jesus died for sins, and they say, yeah, fine, whatever. And then you talk to them again, and they say, yeah, fine, whatever. And then you talk to them again, and all of a sudden they go, what? Why didn't you tell me that before? <laughs> well, okay. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the miracle of God's grace when suddenly things that we could not understand, we do. When suddenly things that made no sense at all are now the things that we live for. The knowledge of his promise and our, and our growing belief in it is a part of the way that we come to be given the faith that changes us. Because remember, according to scripture, faith itself is a gift from God. It is not something that's inherent in you. You do not have a native faith that you just need to somehow make stronger. If you have faith, it's because God put it in you. Amen. It's a gift from Him. 
If, if it was yours, you could boast about it. Amen? Amen? If it was something that you possessed, something that you just made stronger by working hard, you could boast about it. But that's not what it is. It's an alien faith implanted in you by the Spirit of God, and it is His to do. Now, having given you the grace to believe that what He says He means, God then calls us into relationship whereby we might commune with Him and even speak with Him. He says in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together. God invites us to interact with Him. He invites us to come before Him boldly. He invites us to approach the throne of grace. And He calls us to do this because in the end, He is revealing to us His eternal purpose. Now, bear with me. Because at this point, when we start talking about God revealing His eternal purpose... It becomes even harder to wrap your head around. Because if God doesn't owe us any revelation of himself, why in the world would he choose to reveal to us what he's doing and why? It boggles the imagination to consider that the God of the universe actually desires his children to know what he's doing. He actually desires his children to not only know, but to anticipate, and to somehow, in in some way that, that he could do it without us, but he chooses to do it through us, so that we might participate with him in the work of the gospel. Look, God could save every single one of you without any intervention from any human being. We know that he spoke through Balaam, or through Balaam's donkey, I mean. Excuse me. He spoke to Balaam through a donkey. It doesn't make much of me, and I'm okay with that. (laughs) It's not about me, and it's not about any human interaction. The truth is, God could do it alone. But he chooses not to. Because he wants us to be a part of what he's doing. He wants us to recognize that in his kingdom, he is our purpose and he is the meaning for our lives. So he calls us into a relationship whereby he tells us what he's doing and how we might interact with him in it. Look at Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3, and we're going to start reading at verse 2. Amos chapter 3, starting at verse 2. God speaking to Israel says this, You only I have known of all the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he's caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare in the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? 
So God is speaking to Israel about the reality of why he's chosen them, and it is the declaration of his glory. Israel, as a nation, was chosen for the production of Christ. They were chosen so that the Christ would be produced in the right time and in the right place. But in a very real sense, you could say that Rome also was chosen for the same purpose. Because the fullness of time came about when Rome was the king of the earth. Christ came at a time when it was appointed by God and when it was important and and all circumstances were to be fulfilled. But God's working through Israel began long before Rome. God had been working with Israel for thousands of years at the time of the coming of Christ. And he had chosen them so that all the world might know through them the glory of God. Now this spoke to Christ as the final revelation of God's glory, but it also spoke to how God interacted with Israel as a people. Israel had a bunch of strange and funny laws. They had dietary restrictions that set them apart. They had clothing restrictions that set them apart. They had restrictions about who they could marry and who they could not marry. They had an interaction limitation that God had placed on them. They had all sorts of things that made them strange among all the people of the earth. And ultimately, what that did was to plant in them, first of all, a knowledge that they were chosen and set apart. But it also was a testimony to those who were around them that God was holy. And that they were, if they were to be loved by God and to be known by God, then what God made them for was holiness. And God called people out of a life of of foolish pursuits and empty pleasures, called them out of pagan worship, called them out of false gods, called them out of every other thing, and made them his own, and gave to them this burden of holiness. He gave to them this command of holiness. And it's the same command that he has placed on us. Now, we've been delivered from the dietary restrictions, so go home and have ham this afternoon. It's completely okay. We, we, we have been delivered from the, the prohibitions against mixed fabric, So if you're wearing a cotton blend garment today, then you're probably okay. We've been set apart for holiness, but the outward limitations of some of the the laws of the Old Testament have been relieved. Christ satisfied and fulfilled the law. But the demand for holiness, if we take it seriously, makes us stranger than any garments ever made Israel. And God makes us holy and calls us to holiness because we are then the people through whom he proclaims his message to a dying world. There are still people in the world that are still chosen of God that God is in the process of calling to himself. The time is not yet for them or maybe the time is closer for them or maybe the time is far off. I don't know. I don't know who and I don't know when. I approach evangelism with the idea that everybody I speak to is chosen even though I know that they're not. Can't be, because there will be people in hell. However, that's not my concern. That's not my business. That's God's business. That's far above my pay grade. So my challenge is to approach everybody with the truth of the gospel and to assume that the gospel will do its work where it's supposed to do its work. But I I recognize the truth that that process is hindered in me If I do not live as if I believe what God says. Amen? Amen. If I'm not willing to look at my life and say, Lord, you are a holy God and you call me to holiness. If I'm not willing to do that, then I should close my mouth about Jesus. Because my life is a hindrance to my testimony. 
Now, that has its own complications because God doesn't permit me to close my mouth. So I have one choice and one choice only. Engage with him seriously about holiness. Engage with him seriously about the abiding sin in my own life and repent of it. Turn away from it. Turn unto him. Because God is speaking to us about what he's doing. And beloved, there is an important message that is delivered to us to deliver to the world. And if we will not engage with God about holiness, our message is hindered. Our ability to fulfill that purpose in our lives is compromised. God calls us to walk in holiness and to take him at his word because he is delivering the message about who he is through us. And to do that, he also delivers it to us. He asks these questions in Amos. Do any of these things happen unless there's a reason? Do lions roar without a reason? Do do trumpets sound in a city unless calamity has come? And he says this, the Lord will not do anything without revealing it to his prophets. What's the implication in that? They're supposed to speak what they've been given. They're supposed to engage with a lost and dying world and say, look, Pay attention, guys. Beloved, the world is is on a fast track to hell right now. And the church cannot afford to be silent about the issues that God tells us to speak about. The church must engage with this because God himself has given you the message of what is true and what is not true. In his word, he gives you what is true. Look, it doesn't matter what what the political views of the age are. God made male and female, and that's it. All this other nonsense was made up by man. God said, life begins at conception. I have known you since you were in the womb. It's it's absolutely evil to pretend otherwise. But churches are being silenced by a fear of the culture instead of by a fear of God. I don't want to become overly political. I want to tell you the truth. These things are not political issues. They're sin issues. And our calling is to speak the truth of what God has said. Because judgment is coming. And if we will not turn from our sin, judgment will destroy us. For us as Christians... This cannot be overstated. It is important for us to recognize what God has said in this matter. As a corollary to that, we also need to recognize that God never changes his mind and God never changes his plan. It's the same plan that has always been in place since before the world began. He he is magnificent beyond our ability to understand. And he is governing his creation according to his intention and according to his perfect plan. And he is doing this through these flawed and failed instruments called us. (laughs) And, And he is doing it magnificently and perfectly. And he will accomplish the fullness of his will. He doesn't change his plan. He doesn't alter it. So what God tells you now 
is what God means always. So when he says in his word, I like this and I hate this, he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to alter his instructions about how churches are supposed to be organized just because our culture suddenly decided that things are different. He's not going to change his opinion about who is qualified to be a pastor and who is not qualified to be a pastor simply because the culture says, sure, a woman can be a preacher. The Bible says no. And I'm sorry if that offends, but it's the truth of God's word, and I have no hope if I do not believe what God has said. I'm saved by believing what God has said. Amen? And if I can't believe that, if I can't believe that God is true, then clearly I have a problem with my own soul. It really is this black and white. It truly is this simple. God gives us his word and calls us to take him at his word. Psalm 33:11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. He doesn't alter anything. The nature of his, he doesn't alter anything of his nature, and he doesn't turn his purpose from the path that he has always determined it would be. Job 23 says, He is unique. Who can make him change? Whatever his soul desires, that he does. He performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Beloved, this is our steadfast hope. Look, if God were to change his mind about things like, well, this I love and this I hate, then who are we to take him at his word when he says, you I love? Amen? Suddenly, if we believe that God changes his mind about what he loves and what he doesn't love, all of our steady belief in him loving us forever because he said he would love us forever goes out the window. God doesn't alter anything that he determines and he doesn't alter anything that he plans ever. It is always true. It is always steadfast. It is always what he said it would be. And this is the bedrock of our hope. Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. I am the Lord. I do not change. And therefore, you are not consumed. And why is that? Because God promised that he would hold them forever and they would be his. Because I promised it, I'm not going to get angry and destroy you and then go, "Ah, oh man, (laughs) that's not how he deals with us. It's not how he works because it's not who he is. Now, this means that we have to approach, if we're believing that God gave to us a revelation of himself, then his self-revelation is the only one that matters. Amen? I don't go out and poll the culture about who they think God is or how we should worship. In fact, if I want to take the scripture seriously in Deuteronomy 28, it tells me when you go into the land that I'm giving you, don't ask them how they worship their God so that you can do the same. I have no apologies for Rick Warren and the purpose-driven life. He's wrong. The purpose-driven church is a wrong approach. We do not go to lost people and say, how would I change church to entice you to come in? That's not what a church is supposed to be. 
A church is defined by God. It is defined by His Word. It is defined by His truth. He gives us His instruction, and He means what He says without exception or apology. Because in the end, He alone is the source of wisdom. God does not need our counsel. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. And Jude 25 says, To our God and Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. If He is the sole source of wisdom and the sole source of truth, it also stands to reason that there is nobody who has the right to question Him about what He has done or what He has ordained. Look, here's the simple rule of thumb. In fact, it's good enough for two thumbs. If God has determined it and said it, it's right. Period. End of the question, end of discussion. What God has said is always right. So if your opinion differs from what God says, you need to adjust your opinion. I have had people say to me in the past, people who should have known better, they didn't like my preaching, that's fine, I don't like my preaching either. I said, so what's wrong with it? What do you want me to do differently? Where am I, where am I not being biblical? That was my question. And the answer I got back was, no, 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 it's all biblical, I just don't like it. Okay, I guess we're done here. I don't have anything else to be. I'm biblical or I'm nothing. And I have to be that. And I'm not pretending that I always get it right. Please don't misunderstand me. I can be wrong. My question to to this person was very honest. Where was I wrong? What did I say that wasn't biblical? Let me fix it. My aim is to always be biblical. And being biblical has forced me to change my view of the world. The more I grow, the more I understand, the more God reveals himself to me, then I am always the one who is having to change my perspective. I don't ever come into a conversation with my God or with his word and say, okay, Lord, here's my agenda for this time. I want you to change to match my my list. That would be a very disappointing life because God would say, "Uh, no, not going to happen. Beloved, hear me. If you're going to be serious and earnest about your pursuit of growing in grace and being useful in the hand of God for the sake of His kingdom and for the sake of His Son, you have to put your life in subjection to the Word of God. You don't have the right or the privilege or the freedom to say to God, I believe you for salvation, but I'm not going to believe your Word for how you want me to live. You're not free to do that. And if you belong to God and try to do that, I promise you God will correct you. And it will probably not be very pleasant. He will correct you through pain, and He will correct you through suffering, and He will correct you through misery, and He will correct you by whatever means are necessary because He is determined that His children would reflect His image. So take it on the front end and go into it with your eyes open saying, Lord, I know I'm going to get this wrong, but I really want to get it right. So teach me your word and help me obey it. Because he doesn't come to us for our opinion and he doesn't accept our criticism as worth listening to. Look at Daniel chapter 4. 
In, in the book of Daniel, we encounter Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the nation of Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 4, God does a work in the life of Nebuchadnezzar that is unparalleled in, in human history. Nebuchadnezzar had encountered God on several occasions. He had been uh, chosen by God. I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because of what we're about to read here. But he'd, he'd been chosen by God, and God was at work in changing him away from his pagan gods. And he had, he had encountered God with wisdom and power as, as Daniel was given the vision and the interpretation of a dream that scared him to death. Um, and he, was, he encountered God as uh, Nebuchadnezzar chose to misinterpret what that dream told him to do, and he built an idol and told his people to worship it. And three Hebrew boys said, no, I'm not going to do that. He threw him into a burning furnace, and uh, they were untouched. And there was a fourth man who looked like fire walking there among them. I believe it was a pre-incarnate Christ who went to save these children. And he had encountered God over and over and over. And in chapter 4, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a warning. And he told him, you're a proud and arrogant man, and if you don't stop it, I'm going to destroy you and wrest from you your kingdom, and I'm going to humble you. Nebuchadnezzar chose to not listen, and God did exactly what he promised. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lived as a madman, um, wet with the dew of the grass. His hair grew long like feathers, his nails long like talons. Um, And he was out of his mind. And at the end of the time, God restored not only his mind, but his kingdom to him. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's take. So look with me at Daniel chapter 4, and we're just going to read from verse 33. I'm sorry, verse 34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me. Now, this is seven years in. My understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All of the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, of all of whose works are truth, and his ways are justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar got the lesson? I think he did. I think that he understood the God with whom he was now dealing. But I love his statement that in all of his creation, nobody is able to challenge him or say to him, what have you done? That's not to say that those words are impossible to ask. He's talking about the right to challenge God's decisions. And it's at that ground that we, as the people of God, above all others, must surrender our pride and arrogance and hubris. Because more often than not, it's Christians who want to argue about God's ability and right to be God. I talk to lost people all the time, and they recognize that there is a God, and they recognize that God has the right to do what they, what they want, what he wants. They just don't like him. They don't like his rules. They don't like his policies. They don't like his holiness. They certainly don't like leaving sin. But they know that there's a God that is God, and at some point they're going to have to answer to him. And their, their understanding is foggy and confusing, and it's strange to me as people think the way that they think. 
But what baffles me far more than that is when I encounter Christians who want to deliver God from his right to be God. Who want to relieve him of the burden of being God and making decisions and running the earth. Who think that somehow that makes him a bully or somehow that makes him inaccessible or somehow that makes him less than he is. And so they want to diminish him. They want to bring him down to our level. And those conversations always occur with Christians, with people who name the name of Christ, but they don't know the Christ that they name. Beloved, hear me. God has the right to do with whatever he has made, whatever he wants. Amen. And if that means that he's going to blow your life up to teach you something, like he did Job, I pray it's not true. But if he does, then you need to learn the lesson of Job and say, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You need to hear me very carefully. Our vision of God must increase. As high as it is, as high as I strive with everything that I have in me to lift our vision of God continually and continually and continually, it's not enough. Our vision of God must increase. We must see Him higher. We must see Him more beautiful. We must see Him more holy. We must see Him as more. Because I promise you, I promise you, you will not get into heaven and hear God say, oh, you made too much of me. Amen? It's not possible. In everything that we do, we must always be striving to elevate our vision of God, to lift Him higher, to make Him more, to make Him more glorious, more beautiful, more true, more powerful, more God. He deserves it. He's worth it. And and more than that, it's what you're made to do. There will never be any new information that God receives that causes Him to change anything. You're not going to talk him out of being God. You're not going to be able to deliver an argument that somehow he's going to go, oh, I never considered that. You're right. I need to not be me anymore. I need to change so that I look more like you. It doesn't happen. His plan is inviolable and unchanging from before the world began, and he will carry it out to completion in the fullness of everything that he did. He will not miss one scrap or one iota of what he has intended. And for some reason that surpasses my ability to understand and always will, he's chosen to invite us to participate with him in that work. And the response that I long to see more of in me, and I long to see more of in you, is worship for what he has done. He deserves it. Everything that God has done is going to come to pass according to His plan. In the end, Isaiah 46, God says, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. May it be so. May it be so with me. May it be so with you. And may it be so with us as the body of Christ. May he do all his holy pleasure in our midst and through our hands. That Christ would receive the glory that he deserves. Let's pray.
Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day to understand your truth. And I pray, God, that as we labor in this land and as we labor in this community, that we would hold high the name of Christ with glory and honor and truth, that we would revere his holiness and revere your glory, and that everything that we do would be aimed at lifting high the name of Jesus. God, help us make much of you. Help us honor you. Help us live in such a way that Christ is magnified in our midst so that whatever else the world might say about us, they will at least be unable to not say they love their Jesus. God, I want every single one of us to be called a Jesus freak because it's true. We ask it in his name for the sake of the glory of the risen Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Yeah.